What's up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the meaning! My name is Jared, and I'm joined here with the Show Me the Meaning crew. We got the classic three today. We got Ryan. Hey, film fans. Long time no see. And Austin. <laughs> Yo. So, as those of you who don't listen to our South Park podcast, I announced a couple weeks ago that uh, Ryan has got a new job. So, we're kind of working out the kinks to see how we can keep him on the podcast. But it's been a couple weeks. How's it feel to be back, Ryan? Man, I've... I, I, I've missed you guys. I've missed all the fans. I've missed Jared. I've missed Austin. I've missed movies. Just talking about movies. I have no one to talk about movies with. But uh, <laughs> oh, but yeah, I'm so glad shame. to be back. Here to talk about the enigma of editing, the king of cuts, the jack of all juxtaposition, Nicholas Rogue. <laughs> rest in peace. I want to know, did you write that out or is that off the cuff? It's definitely on my cell phone right here in front of me. <laughs> I was going to say, the jack of all juxtapositions is probably the best thing I've ever heard. Yeah. Uh, so, Nicholas, yes. uh, as an editor, dude, I mean, like, I'm coming back on a great video or great movie because, you know, as an editor, this guy is the ultimate director-editor. This guy's an editor before he's a director, I'd even say. So uh, I'm ready to talk about him. Yeah, so just to let you guys know, we're talking about Walkabout, the 1971 film directed by Nicholas Rogue, starring Jenny Agutter and David Gopilil. I might be getting both of those names wrong. But anyway, so Nicholas Rogue passed away over the weekend, and so that's why we decided to do this movie, because I don't know if there'd be a wisecrack without Nicholas Rogue. Nicholas Rogue was a huge influence on me wow. in college. I know that both Ryan and I, actually Ryan and I met in editing class, and we studied Nicholas Rogue in editing class, so... um did you hear about him from Kyle Henry's class, Ryan? Yeah, definitely. I The first time I'd ever heard about Nicholas Rogue was when we watched Don't Look Now in our editing class with Jared. I forgot that that was our connection, that, that me, me and you, or, you know, one of them. Um, That's right. But, uh, yeah, uh, and then after that, I devoured his filmography for performance, walkabout, and then uh, what's the, oh, the, the Man Who Fell to Earth are all just perfect. Yeah, he hasn't made a lot of movies, but, uh, and then he made The Witches, yeah. And there was one called like, what, what was he had a movie about sexual obsession that I actually didn't really like. I can't really remember what it was called. Is that the one with his wife? Called, uh, maybe. And yeah, it's she, called, she started uh, in a lot of his films. Anyway, yeah. All right, so let's talk about Walkabout. Let's get some first impressions. Ryan, you already started a little bit about what you think about this movie, but tell us about it. What do you think about this movie? How many times have you seen it? Go for it. Well, to be honest, this is the one I, uh, I, it's honestly probably his movie I like the most, but I've seen the least. I've seen this, this is only really this, I'd say two and a half times that I've seen it. One of the times I didn't really finish it. But I mean, I, I really enjoy this movie more than his others just because it's, for one, it has kids in it. And somehow like his style mixed with kids is like just a cool mashup. And then, um, uh, and then, yeah, it's just about everything, life, death murder you know <laughs> food um and you know J jared for, jared fucking loves this movie probably even more than i do i mean i really enjoy it but like uh uh for if you don't know this about jared jared hates animal deaths in movies it's like mm. a deal breaker for him and there's more <laughs> animal death in this movie than i think of any other movie i know of so um yeah that's just an interesting fact anyway I well love it's really a more a What'd you say, Jerry? It's, do it's dogs specifically. Oh yes, if dogs die, then then that's just a total deal. deal it's a, it's a deal breaker. I'm literally walking out of the theater. It's the goal. <laughs> it's the rule that you can't break. Yeah, but the difference is, is I don't. I can't think of too many films. I mean, I can't think of any films, but I can't imagine there are too many films where they show literal dog deaths. <laughs> you know. 
Well, right. show it, yeah, because they know. They know. Like, could you, you imagine Marley and line. me or fucking Old Yeller if they just like go into the back and they just shoot a real retriever? Well, I won't even watch those movies. No. I mean, I've heard of, I've heard about Marley and me, and I'm like, fuck that shit. I am not <laughs> watching that movie. <laughs> so, uh, so, so, just so, just so everyone's aware of Jared's standard, he won't see a fake dog get killed, but he will see a real kangaroo get stoned to death and be totally okay with it. Right. Right. That is true. <laughs> Or that like a fucking true. Gila monster or whatever those lizards are that are getting... Or a, or, or a, the caribou getting killed in Apocalypse Now. I don't, I don't know any caribous. <laughs> Fuck those things. <laughs> uh, all right, Austin, what do you think about this movie? Is this uh, have you, Had you seen it before? No, this was my first time seeing it. So I, I've heard so much about it. So one of my best friends, he's a director in London. He's the guy that I do the I Dig This Movie podcast with. His name's Keir, and he is obsessed with Australian new wave cinema. And since I have moved to Australia, as a matter of fact, he was actually just here visiting me and, uh, you know, was just blabbing on and on and on about how much he loves Australian new wave cinema. And he's just obsessed with Australian culture. And so he's one of the guys that has introduced me to this first by making me watch the documentary. I shouldn't say making because that sounds like too forceful. By gently exposing me to the wonders of the documentary, Not Quite Hollywood. Are you, have yeah, you guys seen, seen that. that documentary? Yeah, I saw it at yeah, Fantastic we, Fest. It's amazing, Yeah, we both saw it right? at Fantastic Fest. And – and since then, he has been gently introducing me to just these classics of uh, of Australian cinema that are oftentimes neglected by other Anglo audiences. And so I've heard about this film so much. He, he One of his favorite movies of all time is Wake and Fright. And we actually talked about that on the podcast. And I had never seen that, and I thought it was amazing. And he said that this film, Walkabout, came out at around the same time as Wake and Fright. And he prefers Wake and Fright. And he said, I think, though, that Walkabout would be up your speed more or up your alley more. And he's 100% right. I mean, I think this movie is fucking amazing. I think it's brilliant. And the reason why he, he would he would have said that about me is because it's a little bit more ponderous and it's a little bit, you know, like the, the idea of like the formal montage uh, explorations and things like that are, are something that I'm going to like get all wanky about. And so that's why he said he thought oh, I would love yeah. it. And I did. I thought this movie was fucking brilliant and I can't wait to talk about it with you guys. Well, and this is going to be a bonafide circle jerk, Austin, <laughs> because I'm all about that montage in this movie. <laughs> Hell yeah. I mean, uh, actually, it's funny. When Ryan and I were in editing class, uh, we had a list of movies that we had to do a shot-by-shot breakdown of, and basically everyone in this class could pick one movie, and uh, you know you couldn't double up. And I was like one of the last people on the list, and all the films that were taken were ones that were pretty popular or people had seen, and I'd never heard of Walkabout, so I just picked it, and you had to basically make a spreadsheet, and every time there was a cut in oh, like shit. a 30-second segment or something, you had to... <laughs> chronicle it and then say why you think there was a cut and i chose i was such a sadist i chose the part with the with the vagina tree you know what i'm talking about the part where it's intercutting them playing on the tree with the aborigines finding the car and playing with it oh yeah and there's something like 80 cuts in a minute or something like that and i analyzed it and i had to present it to the class and it was an amazing experience. It was a really amazing experience in studying film and just having to do that assignment made me fall in love with the director, made me fall in love with the movie. Since then, I, I remember at in my college, I tried to start a very short-lived cinema club and this was the first movie on the list. I've seen this movie probably like six times. Hmm. I own the fucking Criterion Blu-ray baby and uh, <laughs> I have – actually, I forgot to mention I have the poster of this movie on my fucking wall. Oh, yeah. I, I have I have, I have Jenny <laughs> I have Jenny Agutter 
swimming naked in the pond on my wall. And uh, I just love the shit out of this movie. This is one of those movies that doesn't get any better than this. This is some one of those movies that when people tell me, like, what's the difference between cinema and television? I'm like, motherfucker, you can't do walkabout on television. That's what I point to. Anyway, so one of my top movies of all time, rest in peace, Nicholas Rogue. Uh, you will always be known as a warrior of cinema, an innovator of cinema, and uh, your legacy will be greatly appreciated, hopefully. Anyway... Let's go into a quick recap, emphasis on quick, because not a lot really happens in this movie. A British family's vacation to the Australian outback goes awry when the father goes crazy and tries to kill his teenage daughter and young son. The kids narrowly escape and the father kills himself, leaving them stranded in the wild. On the brink of dehydration, the girl and her brother meet a young aborigine in the midst of his walkabout, or aboriginal rite of passage. He gets them some water and they follow him on his journey. Eventually, the aborigine leads them to an abandoned house where he performs a mating ritual to the girl who expresses only confusion and then rejection. The next morning, the aborigine has killed himself and the girl and her brother reach a mostly abandoned mining town, which they explore as they await people to come save them. Fast forward years later, the girl is married and living a life almost identical to that of her mother and father, but she still thinks back to the time she spent in the outback. End of movie. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Wow, that was a quick recap. <laughs> it was a quick recap, but I mean, what am I going to dwell on, you know? And there were really cool pictures of animals, and they interestingly juxtaposed this and that. I mean, that's yes. what we're going to talk about I, now. I wanted, I wanted we're a detailed get into breakdown that. of all 13,000 cuts in this movie in the recap, Jared. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think that if... I, I'm not sure that it's the best way to, to kind of create a distance with another film, but let's say Wake and Fright as compared to Walkabout. Wake and Fright is much more plot heavy. Um, it, it still has these themes of kind of madness and going out into the outback, but it's much more plot heavy. There's a lot more going on with regards to the kind of journey of the protagonist, right? Whereas this one, it is it is summed up in the way that Jared says, but let, I mean, just for people listening, if they're kind of like, oh, well, that doesn't sound like too much is going on. No, no, no. Within that broad frame, there's a shit ton fuck stuff going on. <laughs> Oh, you know? yeah. And it's all about how these things are communicated. And, and that's what's so in, so goddamn interesting. It's super poetic, super dense just with the ideas and the way that these very relatively simple story is conveyed in such a profound, interesting manner. So let's get right into that. Let's just start off with the, uh, you know, the, the basic thematic backbone of the movie, which I think, at least on one level, we can all agree is civilization versus nature or perhaps a more primitive culture versus modern culture. And uh, I'm also going to introduce here and what I'd like to talk about is how sex plays into this. So first, let's start off with one of the opening images of the movie, which we continue to come back to, which is a juxtaposition of rock walls and brick walls. So very early on in the film, we're presented with an image of a break of a brick wall and in one instance, it's a tracking shot. It goes from the brick wall to a shot of the outback, which is an impossible shot. We're not meant to believe that there's actually a brick wall out there in the outback. It's some sort of formal statement or at least some sort of thematic statement. And then also in this, and this is also bookend with the end of the movie, we see that we have images of rock walls 
and then an image of a brick wall, and they're just kind of juxtaposed together. So um, I find this very interesting. I, obviously, we have these two British middle-class people entering the outback. We have these, and it's interesting how the the credits, you notice that like it's white girl, white boy, and black boy are the way that they're credited. And so obviously, we there's very clearly not only formally with the images that are shown is introducing us to this juxtaposition, but also just in how they are named. And also just the fact that, yeah, we've got middle-class British people lost in the outback who have no idea how to survive in the wild. And we have this juxtaposition between Western civilization and more primitive cultures. Yeah, he can tell a fucking entire story in one cut, which is what his genius is. You know, like, yeah, I love that. The second it cuts to the brick wall, you're just like, hell yeah, I feel that. And you know, I, I don't even know where this movie's going yet, and you already feel it in your gut. Oh, yeah, I, the w one little detail I wanted to point out about the little white boy is that you do know that that is Nicholas Rogue's son in real yeah. life, right? Yeah, he's credited as Lucian John, but his real name is Lucian Rogue. Which, you know, kind of oh. begs the question, like, what the fuck's up with Nicholas Rogue's relationship to his son, you know? I mean, he's, like, trying to murder him in the first two minutes of the movie, and then he strands <laughs> him out in the outback. You know, so maybe there's some meta um, wankiness we can get into, Jared. I'm on the soundboard today, Ryan. Oh, so yeah. Meta right there. <laughs> yeah, it, it, was, um, it was really interesting. I mean, I think the thing that immediately caught my attention, again, like I said, this is the first time I've seen it, so I didn't know what to expect, was, uh, and I had my headphones on, and the volume was up, not too loud, but the grating sound design inside quote-unquote civilization kind of made me think and I know this might be a horrible comparison but it made me think of uh cannibal holocaust oh and, God. See, and that's and, a movie I won't watch for the reason Ryan just mentioned but go on <laughs> right I mean but the reason that it made me think of it is one of the themes in cannibal holocaust is sort of like kind of confounding this notion that quote-unquote industrialized or civilized societies – I'm sorry, that I should say that industrialized societies are quote-unquote civilized. And it's the idea that that everything is a jungle, that being a human – I think that's what the film thinks it's trying to do. Now, whether or not it's successful and whatnot, we'll leave to the discussion boards. But the point is I think it's trying to do that. And so it presents civilization as being loud and violent and like it accosts your ears with its sound design. And this film does something similar because – it was uh there was like this screeching noises and the city lights or the city noises were really loud and like the chopping noises at the butcher shop were really abrasive and uh and kind of stark and it it kind of made me think okay he's he's deconstructing the binary between like nature and culture or between primitive and industrialized peoples and trying to kind of create a connection not some sort of harmonious well we're all just one people i actually think that the film does the complete opposite of that but nevertheless it's kind of like well humans are humans and the difference between bricks and uh, of the city and like the sandstone layers in the outback are only differences of degree not necessarily differences of kind and i thought that was a really interesting way to frame the beginning and then really to bookend the film because it does that at the end as well I think that's really uh, prescient in the uh, uh, scene or the, the juxtaposition between the butcher, you know, and, and yeah. the kid and the kid spearing, what, a, an antelope or something, you know, just going back and forth. And yeah, what does that make you guys think about? Is it to me, the point is, is, yeah, it's the same shit, but just, you know, uh, coded in different ways, you know. 
Yeah, like we in, uh, in in industrialized societies like to pat ourselves on the back because we've like supposedly evolved to these less violent, less quote unquote barbaric uh, means of how we you know eat our food or distribute our resources. But that nevertheless, we're still engaging in these things. I think there's something really interesting about like the repression of the violence that we that we that, that kind of undercuts the way that we source our food. Like we go to the grocery store and we buy packaged meat, but we're not connected to the butcher shop that's chopping it up. And what he's doing, what Rogue is doing, is he's thrusting us into the butcher shop to show us the sort of the cost or or the the steps that are required to uh, to acquire the food that we generally appreciate. Well, the interesting thing is, and I'm going to bring this back to uh, sex before we start talking about the montage elements, uh, but I think another interesting thing there is that Jenny Agutter's character is perhaps more attracted to the lifestyle that a butcher would afford her, but is seemingly not attracted to the lifestyle that the Aborigine would afford her when really it's the same thing, whether he's spearing a kangaroo in the wild or a butcher cutting one in the, wi- in the wild. And And this brings me to what I want to talk about is this kind of what the movie is playing with in terms of sex and what it's perhaps saying about sex in civilization. So let's start off with the girl. The girl is very sexualized. Uh, the guys, are, the Aborigine is also sexualized, but in, in a kind of a different way. And I'm interested to hear what you guys think about this. But let me just go into some examples. So at the beginning of the movie, you see the girl bend down to get food out of the trunk. And you it's all, and then it cuts to her father reacting to what is essentially a close-up of her butt. But interestingly, it's not in his line of sight. But because of the juxtaposition of images, you still get the sense that he's reacting to his daughter's rear end. And this is one of the reasons that Rogue is considered a master of editing, is how he can very subtly, almost as if he's trying to do it subconsciously, insert these kind of sexual, this sexual tension into the movie, even if it doesn't make a a kind of geographic sense, but it makes a kind of formal sense. Um, The camera is often on her skirt line. There's close-ups of her putting her panties on. Uh, There's also, I mean, how can we not think that one of the first images of the movie we see is these girls doing a breathing exercise where they're just like, I mean, how can we not think of that as something sexual? And then, of course, when uh, during the vagina scene, vagina tree scene, and people are probably like, what the fuck is he talking about? We'll get to that in a second. But, you know, like we see uh, the Aborigine reacting to when her skirt kind of falls down a little bit. Uh, And then, of course, she's naked, even though, I mean, she was only 16 when this movie was 17. I I saw 16. So so she was born in 52. The film came out in 71. So she may have been uh 17 18 19 depending on when it was filmed right or she's playing like a 14 or 15 year old so regardless there are definitely some sort of taboo things that are on display they had a whole like censorship board thing because because when this movie got re-released the laws had changed about how how young you could show uh, someone in a nude scene and so then uh, I forget exactly what happened, but but basically they, they had to like get a special permission to clear this nude scene because they deemed it okay. Yeah, I mean, th- those, those scenes with her swimming in the pond are very, I mean, the camera definitely is, uh, it's going a little bit spring breakers on her. You totally. know what I'm saying? It's, mm. it's, uh, it's enjoying the view. Mm. Um, now I want to contrast that with how the Aborigine is sexualized. So... There's some interesting parts where there is a close-up of 
what seems like her looking at the Aborigines, but there's a shot where she's kind of looking down and her gaze wanders towards his junk. There's a close-up of uh, when she touches him for the first time, there's a really interesting jump cut mm. to a extreme close-up of her hand touching his body and like his reaction to that. Um, so, and then I just, before I open it up to you guys, one of the other things I find really interesting is how the girl sexualizes symbols of civilization. Ultimately, at the end of the movie, she does reject his mating call, which is very sad. Um, but at the beginning of the movie, when we see her walking home from school, you can see her hand kind of caressing the fences as she walks. And then I hope I'm not looking too far into this, but perhaps if you listen to the podcast a lot, you know, I maybe I look for sex and everything. I don't know. Hmm. But when they reach the abandoned house in the outback, she, her hands similarly are caressing the fence and then she gets to a part of the fence that is erect, like, you know, the top part of the fence and she kind of, she kind of touches it like it's a dick. Did I, huh. am I the only one who thought of that? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, did, I didn't notice it and now I, if I watch this on, like, subsequent viewings, I won't not be able to notice it. <laughs> well, and then there's the whole thing with the, the scene with the vagina tree, but I want to get to that when we talk specifically about montage. But what do you guys take away with the whole kind of subtle sexual message of the film and that sexual tension between the Aborigine and the girl? The way I think about it is, is that, you know, this movie is called walkabout. It's literally about a guy going through puberty, you know, like out, like, uh, this indigenous, um, ritual. So it's, this movie is just totally amped up on testosterone and, and hormones and stuff. It's, it's all about kids being attracted to each other alone in the desert. So yeah, like it's a pretty weird subject matter and, and, and in someone else's hands it could have gone astray, but I think it, it comes off as to me pretty innocent, like and very, but human and relatable, mm -hmm. you know, you were a kid. So yeah, like, yeah. uh, it's like I mean, the beginning of sexuality. It's not like, exactly. like they've had any experience. Right. And, and I think that's what it's exploring, right? I mean, it's exploring how does a young woman and a young man who are coming into adulthood from two different worlds, how do they approach this experience or this expression that is centrally human, you know, sexuality? And the British middle class who are, you know, notoriously the stereotype is that they're repressed and that they're kind of like, like I had a friend when I was in England once tell me, he's like, oh yeah, we only fuck when we're drunk was his, the way he described it. And it's like, because when we're drunk, then our inhibitions go down and then we're not worried about being respectable or that we're not worried about being like bourgeois or whatever. Like we just, then we, then we just let ourselves be, be, but, um, so there, there are these themes that Rogue is kind of exploring here from within two different cultural milieu. And that's what does make it interesting, right? And and I think that for people who are listening, if they don't understand what the walkabout is, the walkabout, like Ryan was just saying, it is a rite of passage um, among Aboriginal people in Australia where people between the ages of 10 and 16 uh, go out into the wilderness. They call it um, like temporary mobility now rather than walkabout because walkabouts come to actually be a sort of derogatory term in Australian cultural usage. But it's this idea where uh, the Aboriginal uh, person will go 
uh, for a period of six months on his or her own, uh, it's primarily males, but on their own, out into the wilderness, uh, into the outback to survive without any help from their tribal members. And they have a period of preparation beforehand where they learn how to fend for themselves, to fight for their survival against animals, to start fires, to build shelter, how to find water. But more than that, what's most important about it is that it is it is a spiritual journey of the mind. And when they're out for six months on their own, there's also a lot of time to reflect and to think about who you are and what your place is within your tribe, what your place is in the world, um, how it is that you're going to function when you come back and you're reintegrated back into the community now as a quote-unquote adult. You are now an adult member of the society. And so this time period is very serious, and it's interesting that this young boy's time of serious reflection where he's supposed to be on his own, uninterrupted, without help from other people, is interrupted by a woman from another culture and another world that disrupts the sort of pattern that that the walkabout, that this temporary mobility, that this experience, this spiritual and cultural experience is supposed to uh, – the, the results that it's supposed to yield and it kind of gets interrupted by his participation. And maybe that's why he ends up killing himself is that he becomes – it's almost not that it was unsuccessful, but it's like he encounters this woman who kind of – confounds his expectations and the general uh, trajectory of what this experience was supposed to produce. Dude, yeah, that's all super interesting. And, and, and on top of that, um, I, I also think that there's this whole element of, of like, we haven't really talked about that they can't communicate with this guy that much or at all, you know, like, like the, like yeah. that, that's kind of, and, and there's no that's subtitles, right. which is also a really interesting uh, artistic choice because it's all about from the point of view of the white kids trying to figure out, you know, what this guy wants. And, but then it's all about the, the universality of sex, basically. It's like, okay, sure. We can't, we can't communicate with words, but then there's all these moments that are so beautifully rendered in the movie where they do like, uh, uh, like the, the water symbol, like when the kid says like, wah, wah, you know, like, and he's making the symbol with his hands. It's like, you know, f uh, hand signals are a little universal. Then there's music is universal that they all can, can dance to. And then there's sex, which is totally universal. You know, that's how we all are here. So I think that, the, that basically Rogue is playing with his whole, trying to find all these ways that they, 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 that they can communicate together without using words. And sex is obviously a big part of it. Yeah, I love that. And, and I think it's so important too to remember that this is a, this is an English film director making a film about Australian culture, as was Wake and Fright, by the way, right? Um, and there, a couple of these Ozploitation films and from Australian New Wave were made by like English people rather than Australian filmmakers. But so this is an Englishman who's making a film for English-speaking audiences who are going to be introduced probably for the first time on, a, on an international scale this experience of kind of temporary mobility or the walkabout and maybe even seeing aboriginal culture up front for the first time. So that, that, that problem of communication is pushed to the fore. All right, so one thing I'll say is Ryan is right that there is a universal element to this, but there is no sexual congress between the two, and she does reject them. And th I find that to be particularly interesting, and I'm going to use this as a time to transition to talking about montage. Well, hold on. So, I'd kind of like to talk about that w w that moment when she when she rejects him, right? Just yeah. briefly. like like Because actually that's the one moment of the movie that I'm a little um, – like I don't know about because it because basically they, they like I said before he does such a good job of of them communicating without 
having to communicate with words the whole movie, and then it seems like it's a big misunderstanding at the end. Like it does, like it basically, he's there dancing, doing a mating ritual, but then it seems like they're just out there going inside going, what the heck is he doing? Like it doesn't seem like, like she's obviously mm. kind of rejected him, but to me it came across that, that they were totally clueless that he really, really, really wanted to get with her like then, that moment, or he was going to do something drastic. And then when he did do it, that also begs the question to me of like, like, is it just, is it all pride? Is it something in their culture that I don't know about where like if he gets rejected then, or is he just like more of a mentally disturbed Aborigine that couldn't take it? You know, like, like what, that part I really didn't know what to make of. So one thing, I, I, I think that the, the, boy, the boy probably didn't know because he's just too young. But right. I think the girl absolutely knew. I think that she was just basically playing dumb. And I think that there are a couple of hints in the movie, and I'm actually curious as to what you guys think we should think about the girl. Is she likable? There are a couple of things. So, for example, right before this happens, right before the mating ritual, she's trying to tell him, hey, we need some more water. And she says, you know, hey, we need more water. She doesn't, unlike the boy who's, you know, younger and probably has a better proclivity for learning new languages, she doesn't even try to be able to figure out how to communicate with him. And finally, when she, when the Aborigine figures out what she wants and she says water, he, as if making a gesture towards trying to learn how to communicate with her, finally says water. Like he's figured mm. out how to say it. And then she just says, yes, water. And then just walks away. Like, yeah, that's what I'm trying to communicate. Yeah, that's you. the first time she, uh, we see her treating him kind of like shit. Well, no, that's not true. Because even when they first meet Jenny, Jenny, I'm calling her Jenny. It's just the girl. But she's saying water. Anybody can understand that. Oh, what is yeah, wrong with you? True. I can't make it any clearer. She just doesn't get it, and then the boy very simply just, you know, puts his fingers in his mouth like he's communicating, oh, we want water. This is what I'm talking about. And then he gets it. Um, so I don't know. I The first time I read this, I kind of read this as a, a bit of a tragic tale that this girl has been so domesticated by civilization that she can't even recognize authentic love anymore. That's kind of how I originally read this film, and now upon rewatching it, you know, after my college years— I don't know if that's an accurate reading. I don't. I think maybe it can still be read like that, but I don't really know what to think. I I I agree with you. I think that it is kind of like like you're supposed to at the end think that she's this spoiled bitch kind of. Mm. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, I think like I kind of hinted at this at the beginning, but I think one reading of this film, which I think is a sort of forced reading, is that there's like this harmonious connection that we're all just human and that we all engage at a level. And even though we have these communicative barriers, you know, body language and the the simplistic things of life like sex and thirst and hunger can connect us. I think that this film is saying, no, 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 that's bullshit. It's actually the opposite of that. And I think that in one sense that her cultural difference is so vast compared to his that she doesn't actually view him as like some sort of spiritual guide that she can connect with, but he was just an instrument to help her in her survival so that she could get back to the road, which is why when she gets ready to step that first step onto the road after she gets dressed and they've you know been in that house and they wash all their clothes, because she's constantly concerned about the young boy's like jacket, like make sure you take care of your jacket, you're going to need that, because again, this isn't a permanent state for her. They're only out in the wilderness and she knows that She's only using the the boy that's on his walkabout to help her get out of it, whereas his perspective towards her is changed and transformed. It's something much more permanent. It's something much more connective, and she doesn't reciprocate in that because for her, 
He was not like some sort of spirit guide. He was just a means to an end, to get her back onto the road so that they could get back to civilization. Yeah, she says things like, oh, make sure you take care of your blazer because it's your only one or something right. like that. Or you're going to need it later. Right, exactly. So, uh, yeah. And then, she, like, yeah, um, and then she says, like, after at the very end when they get them all dressed, she's like, oh, I'm so glad we decided to wash your clothes or whatever. Basically, like, what are people going to think? And she says that at one point. We don't want people thinking that we, we're, we're tramps. Exactly. And tramp being you know, the, I, the word for, like, homeless, the older word for homeless, right? So it's it's she still doesn't shed her need for that kind of, like, British bourgeois respectability. That, that class thing, she doesn't shed that to actually connect with this young boy, whereas he seems to actually think that he can connect with her in his spiritual, cultural journey. And then because he gets rejected and because he gets rejected by a person who's from a different culture, I think he doesn't think that he can go back. He's failed somehow. So I, I want to bring back the thing you mentioned about the road because this is one of my very favorite but very subtle formal elements is that when she first steps on the road, we hear the clack of her heels, like Ooh. her high heels. Yeah. And it's just like this piercing clack that we haven't heard for basically the whole movie since she's been in the sand. And it's like she's on a road. Her heels are hitting the pavement again. She's found her femininity again. Ooh, interesting. And I think it's just – it's such a powerful, subtle moment. And that's what this film is all about. It's all about creating meaning through those small formal elements, which is why, once again, the summary is so brief, but the substance is so interesting. Inception yeah, it's sound effect. Uh, yeah, uh, the sound design sound is effect. brilliant in this. Um, that's so interesting that she's found her femininity again. It's almost like by stepping on the road and hearing that clack while she's dressed in her schoolgirl school uniform, she's been re-sexualized according to the sort of middle-class notion that then takes us back to those breathing exercises and the sort of like yes. sexualization of young female bodies that, um, that the film right. kind of sets up at the beginning. So even though she was exploring – or at least the film explores sexual themes while she's in this kind of relationship with the boy, the, I mean the aboriginal boy out in the outback. It's a different type of expression of sexuality. Whereas, uh, yeah, it's, it's just different the way that they're, those two cultures, that those two moments, that those situations are expressing sexuality. And I love that idea of her being like almost resexualized. It's like she fits, she slots back into the role that we saw her introduced uh, within at the beginning of the film. All right, so we got a lot more to cover. Want to uh, get going through this? So I want to talk about montage. Now, usually when people think about montage, you know, they're thinking about basically just uh, a bunch of images put together with music playing to convey the passage of time. But what this plays with is more specific, a form of montage that, for those of you who are film nerds, are probably familiar with Sergei Eisenstein who is a uh, old-school film theorist, and specifically this deals with what he called intellectual montage, which is basically a collision of two images that creates a third idea, and this can also work with sound. So, for example, if you guys have seen Apocalypse Now, we see Kurtz being killed, intercut with a caribou being slaughtered in a ritual, and so that's the A shot and the B shot. They collide and create a third meaning, and the implied meaning is that Kurtz's death is a ritual sacrifice as he asked Willard to kill him. So in this movie, we have all sorts of interesting visual and oral juxtapositions, and I'm curious as to what meaning we can discern from them. So the first one I want to bring up is what I was alluding to earlier is the vagina tree slash car section. So basically, 
the girl and the boy have just met the Aborigine. They're at a campfire. They are basically playing around, especially the little boys playing with the Aborigine. And uh, they get into kind of this playful mood and they run up to a tree. And this tree, it's interesting. This is this is the one I was talking about earlier when I had to break it down shot per shot. If you break it down shot per shot, you'll notice that they actually used more than one tree in this sequence. And it's interesting how the tree is shaped like a vagina. There are two branches and a slit in the middle of those branches that makes it look like a pair of legs and a vagina. And you can see how in other shots where they needed like a a branch that was strong enough for the kids to hang off of, they used a different tree, which makes the, uh, the yonic nature of the tree all that much more deliberate. But then even later after the section ends, you can see that her leg is juxtaposed with it, so it's made it even clearer. And there's a lot of very interesting intercutting here. So basically what's happening is that they're playing on the tree. Uh, As they're playing on the tree, the girl is hanging from the tree. Her dress gets a little bit low and the Aborigine seeks... Uh, sneaks a peek at her butt and there's all sorts of these kind of like sexual glancing things going on but we intercut with an image of the girl's butt and then it it cuts to the aborigine's butt as uh, you know like this older aboriginal woman who is exploring the car then there is uh, for example the boy is falling off of the tree and he's caught by the Aborigine boy, and then it cuts to a smile from an Aboriginal girl exploring the abandoned car. So I love this sequence for a number of reasons. One is that it juxtaposes the sexualizing of Jenny or Jenny Agutter or the white girl with the sexualizing of the Aborigines. But also what I find really interesting is the radio. So basically this this sequence, it builds, it builds. The cuts get faster and faster the music gets more intense. We're seeing these butts of, you know, the Western girl juxtaposed with butts of the Aborigine girl and then boobs and boobs. And then the Aborigines find the radio in the car. They turn it on and it makes this screeching noise and all of the music stops. We have a close-up of an animal who walks away. The Aborigines walk away. And once again, maybe this is me just looking at sex and everything, but I think that this is meant to be some sort of a climax that this sequence is a sexual act, like a metaphorical sexual act, and the radio is this kind of perverse climax. And this goes further into my reading of the film as the girl is turned on by civilization or that civilization has molded her sexual desires so that she can't even find the Aborigine sexually appealing because, you know, she's more interested in, like, you know, at the end of the movie, we see her all gussied up in makeup and she's attracted to this whatever uh, job, uh, what does he get? He's getting a promotion and they're going to, you know, like that. that's what turns her on. She is domesticated and her sexual desires have also been domesticated. Damn. Just got a big editing boner that you're talking about. <laughs> that scene's climax, Jared. Oh, yeah, Thank well, you. that's what I do. Uh, there are also some interesting other juxtapositions. So there are industrial sounds of anvils being hit over images of the sun setting and rising. This goes a little bit to what Austin was talking about earlier in how they kind of play with playing the didgeridoo in the city settings, but also playing industrial sounds in the kind of more uh, in in the outback. Uh, there was a part where they're walking by either some real-life camels, maybe the camels were a mirage, I don't really remember, but the camels growling sounds like car engines, and I think that probably was pretty deliberate as well. Well, I think they see real camels, but then they have a mirage of people riding the camels. Right. There's right, like okay. a there's like a sort of uh, crossfade where the camels that are just walking all of a sudden uh, we see then a shot of 
like what looked like some like colonists or colonizers, like British colonial types, like riding them. From what I remember, I, I think that's what it was. Right. And then we mentioned earlier already the visual juxtapositions of the Aborigine whacking a kangaroo and then a, butch, a butcher chopping it with a cleaver. So once again, we have the civilization version and then we have the outback version, which are essentially the same thing. Or it, perhaps that's what I don't know. Would you guys, if, if we were to say that the collision is, you know, Western butt or Aborigine version of getting food and Western version of getting food, what is the implied third meaning or do you think we've already covered it? I think we've kind of covered it. It's how similar they are. It's the universality of 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 both worlds. Similar but distant, right? Similar because, yeah, they're doing the same thing. We're all human. A, bo- a butt is a butt. A boob is a boob. But ultimately, she does not find him attractive. And, you know, I'd actually be interesting to get a female perspective on this because, you know what? I mean, maybe she's maybe she would be attracted to some other Aborigine and David Gulpillo wasn't doing it for her. I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't think so. I mean, I think we can we could make that particular point, but I don't think that's what the film is is most poignantly articulating. I actually don't know that it is about the universality of things. I think it's kind of that's the whole point of the juxtaposition. It's saying, OK, so here's the universality of things. However, you can't get outside of your context. So yeah, well, sure. Yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah. So it's again, even we need to then create like a meta juxtaposition, if you will, um, which is that it's like yeah, sure, we're all humans, but still we're not all humans because we're still conditioned by our cultures. And trying to cut through that to get to this idea that a boob is a boob and a butt is a butt, and that sexual desire is sexual desire is kind of just some romantic universalist bullshit that isn't likely. It's not. Not that it's not possible, but that seems to be some sort of kind of like uh, forced, harmonious understanding of what the human experience really affords. Yeah. All right. My next question is, why do you guys think the father did it? Why did he go? Why did he snap? I I think it's supposed to be that's probably his biggest like unsaid point in the movie. And to me, it's just that civilization will make you go crazy, you know? Well, here's the thing. So he kills himself, and then the aboriginal boy kills himself. So I think that we're we're meant to also look at them in in intention as well. Like, so why does the father kill himself? What are his frustrations? What is his despair? And then the same with the boy at the end. What are his frustrations and what's his despair? And how do we look at, let's say, a 16-year-old boy going through the process of trying to become an adult, but then that gets like – somehow stalled and then that leads to his despair and how do we understand that in relation to a middle-aged man who similarly runs into some kind of despair and what is it is there a a commonality there or 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 what are the differences there and i think that's what we're meant to explore well yeah and you know now that you say that like it kind of seems like he's kind of making the point that that like 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 Civilization sucks, obviously, is is one of the points. But the man is driven to kill himself by by the world, and then the Aborigine kid kills himself because the civilized girl doesn't give him any love. So it's kind of like I think you're supposed to say that on both ends, we're, we're the fucked up ones. Could we say? I mean, this would be Jared's thing, maybe. Is could we say that it's all about like thwarted sexual desire? That the the middle aged man kills himself because he has these insatiable sexual desires that civilization can't satisfy. And to that his the average, own children. I mean, he does sexualize his daughter. That's yeah, and, true. And, and he only tries to kill the son, right? He says, "Come out, bring him out now, bring him with you." Yeah, but and it, he so shoots he can shoot at both the, of them. 
I don't know. He has a clear shot at the girl, but he seems to only want to shoot the boy. I mean, I guess it's up for debate. I think he wants one shot to kill both of them and then just says, you know what, fuck it. Maybe he wants to kill the boy because he thinks that the boy has access to his object of desire, which is the young girl. The girl cares about that, the boy. That's how but... I read it. I, I, and I don't know how literal that is. Maybe right. you just, uh, you know, kind of like vague psychosexual undertones, but yeah. that's how I initially read it. I mean, we don't know enough about the main character to, to get anything other than that he's from the civilized world. So that's, you know, he's like, like he, no he's backstory. looking at, he's looking through papers. It looks like he's some sort of geologist or something. Yeah. He's in the car. He's looking at different kinds of rocks or something like that. I think certainly we're meant to believe that the trappings of a civilized life probably made him go off the deep end. I mean, this is like some uh, but, American beauty shit, right? Right. Like dissatisfied. I mean, because they live in this amazing house with this view of the fucking the the Harbor Bridge, and they've got this awesome pool, and you know, he's got this this domesticated housewife, and you would think all the things that supposedly middle class life were supposed to offer to lead to happiness, he has them, but nevertheless, something about that life is dissatisfying. Yeah, and his job is to literally tear up the earth. He's a geologist. Interesting. You know, like, like mm. he's like, so yeah. Interesting. All right, so I want to talk yeah. about the three subplots, which are super weird because they have no, seemingly no connection or very tenuous connection to the rest of the plot. But there's the Australian weather scientist. And this one I love because it really nails home the sexual overtones of the movie because they're playing with nudie playing cards Time seemingly stops when the one woman in the group crosses her legs. Uh, the One of the guys is offering her cigarettes to get a glimpse of some side boob. Hmm. And then when one guy licks stuff off her finger, it causes another guy to cut one of the balloons to form a distraction because he doesn't want this guy getting to the one girl. And I think this goes more to what Austin was saying about how maybe the father was seemingly seeing the boy as a sense of competition because that's what's going on with these Australian weather scientists. I think you guys are crazy about that point. <laughs> well, okay, let's 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 take it away from the specific idea that he wants to fuck his daughter, which I do think is is on display, but let's just broaden it out and say that his okay. sati- his sexual desire is unsatisfied. He has a wife. He has he has a, a companion that would be somebody that he can have a sexual relationship with, but it seems to be uh, unsatisfying to some extent, and 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 I don't know. I don't actually think that it is it is too much of a stretch to then apply it to the particular. But even if we don't apply it to the particular, I mean, we can still see it as being there's something about libidinal desire and that being thwarted that leads to dissatisfaction. But then again, we can also look at nature and fucking the bears kill cubs because they realize that that cub is going to come in and be a potential. Uh, is going to be a competitor for the attention of the females. You know, you see this all over through nature. So I think Rogue is exploring these themes. And with all of the macro close-ups of various animals in the outback, I don't think it's too hard to draw evidence to make that argument. It's yeah, not too hard. Like half it's not too people. hard, Jared. Too hard. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So then the other ones that I really don't have much to say about are the ceramic makers and the hunters in the Jeep using a rifle. The ceramic makers, I don't know if that was just, you know, more of civilization coming to impinge on the culture of the Aborigines. And then the hunters in the Jeep using the rifle, kind of same thing, uh, especially because they interrupt the Aborigines hunt of a buff. I don't know what that is. I'm so bad with animals. Well, it wasn't a buffalo, it was something like that. 
that cut with the um the thing on the on the back of the truck it's it, isn't it supposed to look like the way it's cut isn't it supposed to look like it's charging towards them and then all of a sudden you realize that it's on the back of a, a truck right well cuz so the aboriginal boy is wrestling one of them and he's uh-huh. taking it down and then all of a sudden we see what looks to be like um, a herd of those same animals. Let's say it's some sort of like right. bison or something like that charging, and it looks like they're charging after the boy to defend their other member of their of their herd. Um, and then it cuts to a truck that drives by, and then that truck has the actual successful dead one of those animals on the back of it. And That's so there's a something awesome cuts. Yeah, it's fucking weird. Yeah, but I mean, it's almost like so man versus nature. Nature then tries to fight against man, but industrialized or quote-unquote civilized or advanced industrialized culture has developed the technology and the tools to overcome nature's ability to fight against man because now we have guns and cars. Well, and, and, and on top of that, it's like at first, like in just the way that it's cut, the, at first, like, like the way the tension builds, at first you think, okay, it's these animals coming to get revenge for their, ki- uh, right. for their kid, but then, oh, no, it's these dumb humans who just aren't even paying attention to, to, the, to the child in the middle of the road and, you know, with, with their fucking giant automobile. So it's like it totally reverses the meaning of what you think is about to happen. Mm. It's awesome. Mm. And that sequence makes me want to talk more about some of the other interesting formal things. So macro lenses, there are images, super close-ups of ants, uh, all sorts of animal shots Mm. that are beautifully shot. Uh, They also do a thing that you don't see in film very often because it's a pretty radical thing to do, which is zoom in on the grain of the film. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, dude. He he was doing digital zooms before Adobe Premiere came out. Right. So for those of you that don't know, basically, if you let's say you film something and it's a shot without a zoom and then you bring it into Final Cut and then you add a zoom in post-production, basically, you just zoom in on the image. It will become grainier and grainier because you didn't do the zoom in camera. You're literally just zooming in farther onto this image, which only has X amount of pixels. And so it's generally something that you don't want to do. If you're going to zoom into something, you want to do it in camera. You want to plan ahead and doing it during production. But in this case, it's even worse when you're dealing with film because then you're literally zooming in on film grain. And I don't even know how you do that back in the Telecine days or whatever they were. There certainly was no optical computers, basically. Well, in 1971, what were I mean? Yeah, I don't know if it was a computer, but but they definitely it was pretty state of the art for the for its time, I think. Yeah, but anyway, there are parts, especially when that, I'm just going to call it a buffalo, is shot by the guy. There's a part where it zooms in on the image, and that was not an in-camera zoom. They are zooming in on the grain of the film, and it's something that most filmmakers will do anything to avoid because Mm. no one wants to bring attention to the medium that they're shooting on because it kind of takes you out of it, and it looks like shit. But he definitely embraces it, and you know, it's just more in terms of him using images to kind of take you out of the movie and kind of reflect on the themes at, at play here. Well, he really, I love he, it, dude. I, I do too, and I was going to ask both of you guys, because you guys are editing lovers, what what do you think about the bit where it's like the pages are turning when the little boy is telling the story to the aboriginal guy, and he's like telling him this story that seems to be some sort of childhood tale, and then the way that the, uh, the, way that the camera shifts from shot to shot is like a page being turned. It's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad you brought like, that like, up. The reason I love filmmakers like this is that it, it, he's not—he's just having fun with the medium while also telling the story. But really, like, 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 there's humor in almost all these cuts because, mm. like, even the even the brick to the stone. I mean, like, like he's making a point, like, 
kind of with a sledgehammer, but also here we are talking about it, trying to figure out what the meaning of it is. So it's, it is subtle enough, and yet, but it's, it's fun, it's engaging, it's compelling. He's using all the audiovisual elements of, telling, of making a movie. That's why Jared was saying, you can fucking do this on a TV, you know, like uh, over in any length of time that a TV show is, anyway. Hmm. It gives me this feeling of it being like a storybook fantasy in a sense, especially when you contextualize it with the ending and that poem by A.E. Houseman, A Shropshire Lad, and it's basically a poem, and I'll read it next when we get into the ending, but it's basically a poem about nostalgia and reaching back into those days that are no longer within reach that you can only reminisce about. And I think that Hmm. in that moment we kind of get a sense of how the girl – perhaps idealizes and is able to access this kind of fantasy storybook setting. All right, so let's talk about the ending. So it's Im- it's bookended with images that are not just strikingly similar, but obviously very deliberately similar with basically Jenny Gutter is now married. She's just like her mother preparing a meal in the kitchen. And we see her gussied up with makeup for the first time. And we continue to, and then it calls back to the various brick walls and rock shots that I mentioned earlier. And then her husband comes up to her and she embraces him and he tells her about how everything is going to be all good because he got this promotion and they're going to be chilling in the Bahamas or wherever. And then she kind of looks away, perhaps, I I don't know how you guys read it, perhaps it's a feeling of discontentment. And then the poem by A.E. Houseman uh, is said over an image of them all naked uh, in the outback with the Aborigine who's now alive. And uh, I'll go ahead and read the poem. It's into my heart and air that kills from yon far country blows. What are those blue remembered hills? What spires? What farms are those? That is the land of lost content. I see it shining plain, the happy highways where I went and cannot come again. And then it ends. So what do you guys think of the ending? Is this a tragic ending? Is she in a and a marriage and a life situation that is not appealing to her and she constantly has to think back to this more idealized time or is it more cynical than that is she just is she just living this pretty cool life and this uh, this alternative life with the aborigine she just is able to use it use it to fantasize about and it's almost this utility that allows her to relax or something I think that it's actually kind of a combination of the two. I think that it is pessimistic and cynical. I think that she uses that image, but not because it somehow gives her pleasure and happiness. Um, It does to an extent, but it's a perverse pleasure because it actually contributes to the dissatisfaction that is necessarily a part of her life as a middle-class um, I, we're in the 70s here, a middle-class housewife who's probably not working, uh, right? So we have to assume that she's kind of just assuming her role. And right. it isn't that she uses this as, an, as a fantasy to like be like, oh, I like, like, I don't know, like my mom does when she talks about the guy that she met when she was on the cruise. And she's like, I had such an amazing time with Franco who was from France. And it's not like that, you know? It's Or maybe it is actually kind of similar. But it is something about um, she she connects this experience not because it was so joyous and free, but because it precisely kind of was something that she wasn't ever able to really understand. And so she can only hold on to it now as this like, I don't know, as this kind of like perverse enjoyment that actually forces her to remind her why she is the way she is and how she can only fit within her context and her role. Does that make sense? It does. 
And yeah. I think that this, for me, connects back to the storybook page turning or newspaper page turning thing is that this is a fantasy tale that she holds on to and reflects back on and and accesses to kind of get to live vicariously through to come back to when she's feeling bored in her domestic life. Yeah. See, I, 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 I kind of take the more cynical. I, I mean, I think it's a definitely a tragic ending. Like uh, uh, she, she is kind of looking back on it a little fondly, but at the same time, the dude killed himself. Like Nicholas Rogue went there. So I definitely mm. think we're supposed like, she is thinking yeah, that she not necessarily. It. Yeah. And she saw it. She's yeah. not thinking about it. And her dad fucking killed himself like two days before that. And she never really mourns him throughout the movie, which is kind of weird. But, um, uh, yeah, I definitely think that she is not, she's looking back on that as honestly like this really, this missed opportunity in her life. And, and and she's never really moved on from it. And even though she's seemingly living this normal, civilized life in the in the future, it's just kind of she's like, damn, what could have been, you know? Like, uh, and so it's. I think it's a really downer ending. Ending. I this just popped into my head based on something Ryan said. This was a, this would be forcing it. But do you think because she never pays much attention to actually feeling sad about her father killing herself, do you think we might even be led to believe that maybe he sexually abused her? Dude, I could. I uh, mean, I never even thought about that, but yeah, like she she straight up never she's cold man. talks about it the whole yeah. movie. You know? Yeah, and and then when her little brother brings it up, she's just kind of like. Oh, kind of forget about it. Like, forget that guy. And because this film is exploring sexuality, repressed desire, and because of how he sexualizes her, I mean, we, I don't know, maybe we are meant to think that he, maybe he did sexually abuse her. Yeah, and then he's trying to, like, kill her to cover it up or to just, and or just because he thinks he's a piece of shit. I yeah. think it's a fair reading, but I don't think that... There's a lot of evidence to draw on for that because I think this movie doesn't really deal with psychological, like horrifying psychological trauma as I much as I think we just found does. the evidence. Well, but I think that the movie is more about the trappings of civilization and how it can be numbing and how there's a difference between that and kind of the more organic free land or whatever. And so I think that – I mean – it's, I mean, it's a reasonable reading, but well, it's not uh, my but, but, favorite. But how, how, how was your reading of that first scene where the, the guy going crazy? Because even though I said all that stuff at the beginning about, you know, that's my take on it. That's like my real stretch take because there's nothing that they give I us. don't, no I mean, I, I guess I just said. don't, like there are certain things that happen that don't necessarily need to have a lore-based motivation. Like he, in a sense, in that sense, in that scene is just functioning as a symbolic representation of how society can make you go apeshit and that's all there is to it. If you want to try and find a character motivation for it, yeah, I mean, you could put some pieces together and maybe come up with it, but I don't really think it's necessary and I don't think that's mm. where the greater themes and form of the movie is really pointing to. Well, me neither. I don't think it's necessary, but I do think that that having – after Austin just said all that, I think there's enough there that you could – that he, I think he kind of did make a subtle point that 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 the dad and the daughter have a have a tumultuous, if not abusive, relationship, and that's why he went. You know, that was part of the reason that led him to go psycho. And then she doesn't give a fuck, and then never talks about him. You know, I think that there's a lot of evidence when you think about it because it's fucking weird that he she she never seems. Sad. I mean, yeah. Once again, cries. if you're if you're looking for a concrete motivation like that, then yeah. But I'm just saying. It's not necessary to. Right. So even if we say that it's not necessary, we can definitely say at the abstract or at the formal level that 
if father is just father and he's just occupying a space that is adult man, adult quote-unquote civilized man, and daughter is occupying space of young virginal girl, there's definitely something that's being explored about how it is that British, uh, Australian, let's say Anglo-civilized, industrialized, advanced industrialized society views the sexual dynamic between adult men, father figures, and uh daughters, young women who aren't, who are, who are like on the verge of becoming adults and that that is definitely on display. Oh, and one more thing real quick before we go. Roger Ebert actually wrote a really lovely review you can check out. It's on rogerebert.com and I'm not even the biggest Roger Ebert fan in terms of like his take on film, but I think this is fantastic. So here it is. This is the closing of his review. He says, the movie is not the heartwarming story of how the girl and her brother are lost in the outback and survive because of the knowledge of the resourceful aborigine. It is about how all three are still lost at the end of the film, more than more lost than ever before, because now they are lost inside themselves instead of merely adrift in the world. The film is deeply pessimistic. It suggests that we are all that we all develop specific skills and talents in response to our environment, but cannot easily function across a broader range. It is not that the girl cannot appreciate nature or that the boy cannot function outside his training. It is that all of us are the captives of environment and programming that there is a wide range of experiment and experience that remains forever invisible to us because it falls in a spectrum we simply cannot see. And I loved that. Oh, man. Beautiful. Dude, sometimes Roger Ebert just has, he fucking nails it. There are some Roger <laughs> Ebert reviews that are fucking gems, and that sounds like one of them. Awesome. Wow. Thank you for bringing that in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, so let's go into the mailbag. Uh, once again, if you want to leave us a voicemail, it's 213-534-8807. Let's start off wait, with wait, Joe. Wait. Jared, it's not. It's, that's not the number, you know. Ga- yes, it our, is. Our, our 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 reader Gabriel sent us a new number. It's one two one elf gut zero seven. <laughs> All right. So, well, but he's. It sounds like he's adding an extra one. Well. No, you have a one at the beginning of all numbers. Okay, I guess if you're depending on where you're calling from. All right. So, what is it? One two one elf gut o seven like double o seven but elf gut o seven. All right, one two one, one two one elf gut o seven. Yes. <laughs> All right. Thank you. I'm gonna Peter. have to. I'm gonna have to write that down. All right. So let's get one from John. Go, John. Hey, show me the meeting crew. It's John from Athens, Georgia. Just wanted to take a quick break from my from studying for my law school finals to talk a little bit about something that was mentioned in the Dark Knight podcast. I think it was Austin that talked a little bit about how Batman as the Jesus character doesn't really work because Batman was guilty, whereas Jesus was innocent. And I wanted to hear your guys' thoughts on Batman or as uh, <laughs> of Harvey Dent as the Jesus character and Batman as is Judas, because Judas obviously the one that betrayed Jesus in the Bible. Without him, without his betrayal, Jesus wouldn't have been nailed to the cross and risen three days later, and that led the way to salvation. I think the same could be said for Batman. If Batman didn't kill Harvey Dent and take the blame for his crimes, then uh, Dent's legacy wouldn't have been Save the Harvey Dent Act, which could be seen as Harvey Dent's resurrection three days later, wouldn't have been passed, and Gotham wouldn't have been given its salvation. 
Uh, I'd love to hear what you guys think about this idea. It's just something I thought of while I was listening to you. Cool. Thanks, John. One thing I want to jump in, I would say that the Judas characters is rather the Gotham police. So especially the cop Ramirez, who says that she basically had to give up the ideal. She turned Harvey Dent in because the mob was offering to pay for her mother's hospital bills. And then there's the other cop, Wirtz, who was also working with Ramirez to give mm. uh, to give Dent to the mob, who was also a corrupt cop. So I think that those are the betrayers of Christ, which works even better because just as uh, you know, Harvey Dent is a public servant, and the cops are part of his you know group, just like um, Judas was you know part of the Christ posse, which is how a Jew will say it. Because what is anyway? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but anyway, did you want to say anything? He he mostly directed the question to you. No, that's uh, okay. Austin, I mean, yeah. I fuck. I mean, I'd need to take and think about it for a minute because I'm automatically thinking of the next film, The Dark Knight Rises, where it actually is the Dark Knight that rises. So I I think, I mean, obviously metaphors only go so far, and we need to kind of like think about what they can say without kind of pressing them to their sort of like logical conclusion. But like, how would we think about that in terms of? Does Harvey Dent rise, so to speak, from the grave because of the Dent Act, or is it something else? And that really the the resurrection is we have to wait until the third film, and then we'd have to understand how we kind of fit all this into the Jesus narrative. I, I don't know. I, I haven't even well, thought about it, that but I do I've like always... what Jared said about the betrayers being the Gotham Police Department. I think that's there's something interesting there. But I don't know, man. That's a great question. Well, I would say in terms of the third movie, the resurrection. I mean, okay, so. The third one is uh, is uh, very overtly based on A Tale of Two Cities. In A Tale of Two Cities, resurrection is a theme in the movie. Now, granted, there are kind of hints of, obviously, biblical resurrection being used to convey that theme within A Tale of Two Cities. But I think that instead of it being a Christ-like resurrection, it's more of a Dickensian resurrection, which we talked about in our What Went Wrong video on The Dark Knight Rises. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. That's I think it's a great question. Um I mean, I think I think like I said, anytime you try to use a metaphor or some sort of like analog, you're going to run into limits, but definitely we can see that there it seems that whenever there's somebody that is trying to do something, there's always a betrayer, right? At least in storytelling and in, in myths and in narratives that we've that we've shared throughout time and history. There's always like the person that's trying to do the thing that's good or that's right, and then there's like the person that's trying to be their foil. Right, that's trying to fuck them right. up somehow. So that's definitely there. All I was going to say about that email, I don't think the metaphor holds up because Judas, from what I hear, is a big piece of shit, and Batman is nice and awesome. Is all I was trying to say. <laughs> he's a nice guy. He's a he's a he's a real mensch. All right, uh, we're going to move on to the email mailbag. Uh, give us a email at movies at wisecrack.co. This one is from Jeremy. He says, I was listening to your podcast regarding the film Mandy, and I thought you guys might find it interesting to know that the Cheddar Goblin ad in the movie was directed by Casper Kelly, the writer-director of the viral video Too Many Cooks. Whoa. I know. Director Panos Cosmatos created the idea of a commercial with a goblin vomiting mac and cheese based on a gif from the 1985 movie Ghoulies and reached out to Kelly to direct this commercial for the movie. Knowing this, do you guys believe any connections can be made between the two videos, and or does this give you guys any insight into the significance of the scene's place in the movie? Well, off the top of my head, no greater meanings, but I fucking love Too Many Cooks, and if nobody has seen the follow-up to Too Many Cooks, which 
I, I don't know how it didn't go mega viral, but it's about Let's Play videos. Got to check it out. I don't remember what it's called off the top of my head, but it's so good. And I love Too Many Cooks so much. <laughs> but I don't know. Do you guys, does that make you think about Mandy in any new ways? Um, no, I, uh, uh, but that's, I mean, you, you can definitely tell the kindred spirits between <laughs> that, that guy and the too many cooks, dude, you can tell it's the same world. And I really got to see that follow up because now that let's plays are my fucking waking life that I have, uh, th- by the way, that's my new job. I edit let's play videos. And so, yeah, I definitely got to see that. <laughs> you haven't seen yeah, it? Yeah, I, uh... I have no fucking clue. I read this email and I was like, mind blown. That's fucking awesome. But I don't know what to think about it. You know, yeah. All right, we got one more, one last email from Chris. Since we opened up this conversation talking about mine and Ryan's film school experience, I want to uh, read what Chris is saying. He says, "Hello, Wisecrack. My name is Christian, and in May I'm going to graduate high school. I know that a lot of you guys went to film school, and I was wondering if you can recommend me some film schools that I can look at, as I really want to be a director more than anything in the world. I'm currently working on two short films, and wouldn't mind sending to you guys for feedback if you guys want." Anyway, right now I'm looking at Full Sail University. If you guys can help me out, I'd really appreciate it. I love your show and your podcast. You guys make me appreciate the movies even more. Keep doing what you're doing. You guys are great. All right. Well, I think this is a great opportunity to give some candid advice about film school because especially if you're planning to move to L.A., Christian, there's definitely some mixed opinions on the value of film school. And um, I'm going to just go ahead and say up front that it really just depends on your financial situation. I, from what I know, I think full sales pretty expensive, right? It's something like, I mean, I think it's only a two year program or is it four years? I don't know. I know it's, if you're spending like 30 to 40 grand a year and you're going to go into debt, I'd say, don't do it, man. Save that money, move to LA, just start volunteering on sets. And honestly, after that four years, you're going to have a bitter, a bigger, better network and be able to make more connections and get paid work doing film stuff out of college if that's what you want to do. Having said that, I went to film school and it was a very nurturing, rewarding experience, but mostly because of just the general education, like all my humanities education, all the literature classes I took, all the classical music classes I took, the film studies classes I took. Those are really the things that inspired me. The film production classes were okay. I mean, I definitely learned the nuts and bolts, but honestly, you're going to learn that much better by literally just volunteering on film sets. It's a much cheaper, more efficient education. So if you're going to go to film school, I'd recommend not going to a trade school that only focuses on film production because they're really expensive. And once again, you can get paid to learn that stuff and learn it way better and you know get valuable connections. Uh, what do you think, Ryan? Yeah, I'd like to probably echo a lot of that. Um, I, I definitely, um, I mean, no, I've been out here for nine years in LA. Not one fucking person has ever asked, Hey, where'd you go to film school? In (laughs) fact, if, if you go, it's sometimes honestly a mark against you. They're like, Oh fuck this film school motherfucker. You know, like it's, it's weird. So because they think you're entitled, they think that You don't want to be that guy who graduates film school and thinks that, oh, well, now I have a film school degree. Someone give me $700 million to make a Marvel movie or whatever. Right. It really depends on what you're trying to do. If you're trying to get into – if you're trying to be a writer-director guy, if that's like what you want to do, it really is, I think, less valuable than if you want to be like somebody that just – 
is in the industry at large. If you want to be a producer, if you want to be like working, I don't know, some below the line kind of a job, then yeah, like like film school will get you those connections and really, because that's really what it's all about is the fucking connections you meet, unfortunately. Uh, uh, it's way less about what you fucking learn. I, like Jared said, I learned, I, I had a great time. I, 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 I fucking um, did learn a lot about film, but I learned way, 99% of what I learned by watching movies, eat, sleeping, breathing movies, and being on sets. I learned very little of that in film school. Um, so yeah, like we're not, you know, don't get cynical based on what we're saying, hopefully. But yeah, like he said, if you at all, if this is going to be a stretch financially for you, like if, if you're taking out big loans, do not do this. <laughs> but if your parents yeah. are loaded or something, you know, or, or just have money to do it and they're like, Hey, we're going to bring you to school, you know, where do you want to go to school for four years? Then take the opportunity, you know, um, and then, but, but if it's your own money, I'd take that and go fucking making my own movie, you know? Uh, uh, or, or put it into my own projects or, or just have it as like spending money for, for yeah, or the, while live I, on while it while I you write learn. or something like that. Like yeah. it's, you'll get, you'll have a better resume than, than your useless film degree. Cause unfortunately they are useless as pieces of paper. Yeah. I mean, having said all that, once again, there probably wouldn't be a wisecrack unless I went to film school. Cause that's where I learned about things like this movie that really inspired me. But now there are things like Wisecrack that can inspire you, and you don't have to pay $50,000 a year. So, <laughs> so take that into consideration. But uh, no matter what, definitely send us your short film and keep, uh, keep in touch. We'd love to hear what decision you make, and good luck with graduation. Yeah, good luck, man. All right. Well, with that, we're going to wrap it up. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Good to have you back, Ryan. We're going to continue to try to make this work. Tell the guys at Funhouse I said what's up. Yeah, well, man, sorry if the audio has been a little shitty. I'm going to try to figure out a better situation. But absolutely, this has been awesome. A, a good welcome home. I think we picked a good movie. It's unfortunately that it's unfortunate that Nicholas Rogue had to die for us to talk about Walkabout. Mm. But uh, yeah, rest in peace, Nick. We love you. R.I.P. Nick. All right, guys. So where can we find you on the internet, Ryan? You can find me at Ryan Shorts on YouTube and Facebook. I released a, I, I, I have a buyback program, a Thanksgiving leftovers buyback program you can literally become a millionaire billionaire or theoretically a trillionaire by selling me your thanksgiving leftovers just watch it on the internet and it'll all make sense oh jesus and austin uh you can hit me up on twitter austin underscore hayden i do a philosophy podcast called owls at dawn and uh, as i mentioned i also do another podcast we're on a bit of a hiatus right now it's called i dig this movie but we've got a huge back catalog of like over 100 episodes so you can check those out as well if you want cool and real quick how's your book coming uh, it's coming, man. I got six weeks, uh, five weeks now to finish the manuscript, so I've got to turn it in by the 1st of January, so my holiday season will be spent in monk mode, where I'll just be kind of not shaving my beard and writing and eating healthy food and working out, and that's about it. Well, I know that's an environment you thrive in, so <laughs> cool. I do I, I do. I do do well. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're signing off for now, guys. Uh, we'll see you next time. Peace. Goodbye from Culver City, California. (laughs) Later, guys.